0: To get started just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com film daily today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp.com film daily hello everyone and welcome to slash film daily from march 23rd 2018. my name is ben pearson i am the senior writer at slashfilm.com Our editor-in-chief and regular host, Peter Serretta, is out on vacation for a week, so today I'm going to present a Pacific Rim Uprising-themed episode of the show. I went to the press junket here in Los Angeles for this movie, and I ended up speaking with writer-director Stephen S. DeKnight and John Boyega, who stars in the film as Jake Pentecost, the son of Idris Elba's stacker Pentecost. So I'm going to present both of those interviews for you here, and that's going to be all we're going to do for this uh, particular episode of the show. So first up, let's talk with John Boyega. I uh, sat down with him, talked to him about Jake's attitude, his swagger, uh, the challenges of producing a movie like this, and his personal favorite ice cream toppings. Take a listen. Well, congrats on the movie, man. No, thank you, man. The film deals with the concept of legacy. As an actor, does that idea of legacy factor in for you to the choices that you make?
1: Um, Definitely, definitely. I think um, specifically artistic legacy is something that, you know, artists in general find important, the kind of content you release, what it does to the audience, how they perceive your performance, Mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. It matters um, to me, definitely. And um, being involved in sci-fi, anything I've done really has been a, a... and, and purposeful uh, decision.
0: Cool. Jake has a swagger to him that we haven't really seen from you on camera before. Was that a, <laughs> yes. uh, a particular aspect of the character that you connected with? Was I loved something...
1: love Jake's swag and, yeah. and, the, and the freedom of Jake. Um, and I wanted to just implement that um, uh, because it, it, it's so important in the writing that it came across as this guy is a rebel. And my thing was coming in, I was like, how do we layer this? How do you make it specific, an individual that doesn't care what anybody thinks of it? Mm-hmm. Make him free. Um, and then Jake and Buddy's a, a free free human being, and he just doesn't care. Yeah. <laughs> it's great.
0: Um, you not only starred in this movie, but you produced it as well. What was that experience like for you? It was a
1: fantastic experience. Um, I, I love being, I've, I've always been the type to uh, watch the special features of a, a blu-ray disc or to jump into a b-roll to see how it actually works on set and i was always intrigued by the various different departments that come together to create a production like this and the producing uh, role um, and guarding and then guiding a project from its birth all the way on to its death on blu-ray mm-hmm. <laughs> it was, was something that i always wanted to be a part of did you see the the scripts in the early stages? I
0: mean, how early on did you come on? Because I know like Guillermo del Toro was working on a draft. Yeah, like a long yeah, I, time was, ago. I wasn't
1: involved when Guillermo del Toro was involved as a director, but once he stepped down, and was producing, and they hired Steve Knight, um and Steve De Knight had given in a few drafts. I came on board, and then we were still going through refining the, the, the parts of the roles, um, and then all the way up until you know, obviously working on the previs for the CG element, and then going on to cast it. Yeah all the way ended up in the market. you know still at it now yeah. <laughs> a... what was the biggest um, challenge for
0: you from a producing standpoint
1: at um, the time at uh, the time uh, uh, you know I mean it's, it was it, it really felt like Han Solo was <laughs> was establishing this whole thing don't tell me the odds because yeah. lord the odds was up against us in terms of how much time we had and of course casting um, uh, gets real complicated when uh, certain actors obviously are, are time and schedule to do other projects and so you're going around location scouting and trying to make all these things work out in this set time mm-hmm. and, and for me it just uh, got real crazy
0: yeah star wars the last jedi it sees finn basically go from somebody who's running away to like a resistance leader mm-hmm. han solo you mentioned uh became a general when he stopped running in mm-hmm. return of the jedi have mm-hmm. you talked to jj can you tease the next step for finn the next evolution of that I, character i really don't
1: know but i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna try and meet him on my trip here to l.a before i leave to china um, just to talk him through like talk, talk a lot of him to talk me through exactly what his plans are and stuff, because I am so intrigued to hear yeah. what he
0: wants to do. Cool. Yeah. When you signed on to this movie, did you sign on for a sequel? Do you think we'll see Jake Pentecost in Pacific Rim 3 if it does well enough? I
1: mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, if it does well, definitely, you will. Definitely, you will. I'll see to it, definitely.
0: Cool, cool. Um, Alright, I have one more Star Wars question. Oh. Uh, the Force Awakens did not feature a romantic relationship between Finn and Rey, and I think people love that. <laughs> and, but it seems like those same fans now really, really want to see Finn in a romance, whether it's with Rey or Rose or, or Poe. Po. <laughs> um, or Chewbacca, anyone. <laughs>
1: Guys are going savage.
0: <laughs> Why do you think
1: that is? And and who would you like to see Finn end up with if anyone? Because Finn Finn is the one character for me that has a relationship, a distinct, unique relationship with everybody. He had this kind of banterous relationship with Han. Mm-hmm. Then he has this loving relationship with Ray. Now with Rose, it feels like you know he has this great relationship. Um, personally, Ray. Yeah. Yeah. I think people will probably Rey. be
0: happy to hear you say yeah, that. Right. So I want to get back to, to uprising for a second. so a, a lot of this movie involves your character inside a Jaeger piloting this thing yeah and I'm just wondering how did you go about differentiating the intensity levels of the different scenes that you're supposed to be in so it didn't all feel like a blur when you're on
1: that same set Well uh, pre, pre-visual animation that's what helped us uh, actually schedule in what we were filming interior in, on the interior scenes. Uh, what we would do is um, Steve would plan out and, and we would roughly animate the CG world bring in a copy on an iPad to show the actors before they you know, do the parts mm-hmm. but it's very specific like anime the fight moves the story forward yeah. you're not just there to fight You're fighting specifically for a reason and in a certain style. Mm -hmm. So, all the actors always have to be on top of the intel. And so, Steve would show them, say, this is what's going on. This is the right fist that you punch. Jaeger's coming back and a slash your face. And all the the actors would just respond.
0: Yeah. So, you mentioned that the timing was really the biggest challenge from a producing standpoint. What was Mm -hmm. the biggest challenge from an acting standpoint for this role?
1: Nothing. Really? (laughs) Yeah. It was just easy for you. Oh, man. (laughs) It was great. I love Jake. I love playing Jake. It was fun always finding out new interesting ways, you know, uh, to play him, new ideas, you know, amping up his cockiness and arrogance was was something that I really really enjoyed doing. It was a good old time.
0: So what kind of ice cream toppings do you prefer in your actual life? (laughs) I
1: mean, I wish I had cookie dough. (laughs) Cookie dough is enough for me. I'm not going to add no sprinkles. Yeah. Uh, But Jake, you know, you like sprinkles. (laughs) cream.
0: (laughs) um did you happen to see the fan art of you as blade that was making the rounds earlier today i've got a picture of it right here have you seen that
1: (laughs) oh wait is this boss logic yes it is oh yeah my guy yeah what the hell (laughs) that's a bit mad it's a bit young though (laughs) Young Blade?
0: If cool. you uh, if you were to be a part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which character if you could pick any character, is uh, which one would you choose?
1: I be really, I really and truly don't know because when I think about Blade, I think, Wow, hey, Wesley coming back to yeah. And we would all love to see Wesley come back, you know, yeah. one more time before we move on to anybody else. But I, I don't know. <laughs> I think the Marvel Universe is doing well right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, are there any
0: other projects uh, from a producing standpoint that you're interested in pushing forward? I, I know that a lot of times actors will start production companies to make stories that they couldn't tell because they're not getting involved with the right roles or, or yeah. being offered the right roles. Are there are mm. any passion projects that you're really excited about? Yeah,
1: definitely, in developing now, but I can't speak about it.
0: Bummer, okay, mm, fair yeah. enough. All good.
1: All, good.
0: <laughs> All right, well maybe I'll catch up with you uh, yeah. for one of those next ones, and oh, we'll talk about it then. Definitely. So that was John Boyega, I hope you guys enjoyed that. Next up I speak with Steven S. DeKnight, who has been working in TV since the late 90s on shows like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Angel, Smallville, Spartacus, and most recently uh, Marvel's Daredevil, and Pacific Rim Uprising, which he directed, is his feature directorial debut. He co-wrote this movie and actually sort of adopted a TV-style writer's room approach to crafting the script. And when I spoke with him on the Universal Studios lot, he told me all about that. He told me how the film changed after Guillermo del Toro stepped out of the director's chair, the pop culture influences that uh, worked their way into this movie, and working with the cinematographer of Star Wars The Force Awakens to bring this Jaeger-sized sequel to life. Just a quick note before we start, though. This interview was recorded in a trailer, And the air conditioning in the trailer was blowing like crazy the entire time that we were in there. So you're definitely going to hear that in the background. I just wanted to apologize for the sound quality there. I hope you guys can bear with me and stick with it. There's a link to the written version of this interview in the show notes of this podcast episode. So if the air conditioning is too overbearing, again, I apologize. Do me a favor, click that, read this whole thing. I think we had a really good conversation. It's a long one. It's about 20 minutes, um, which is longer than I've gotten with anyone in a long time. So we, we dive into a ton of different aspects of making this movie. I hope you enjoy it. Guillermo del Toro has said that he originally wrote a screenplay for this and he worked on a few drafts before he eventually stepped away to direct uh, Shape of Water. So what sort of changes did you make to the script in order to
2: sort of uh, put your own stamp on it? We basically started from scratch. Oh, really? Yes, uh, I put together a writer's room, very much again in TV fashion. Uh, half TV writers, half feature writers. Um, I had a storyline uh, in mind that I pitched to Guillermo that he liked. And so I wrote like an eight-page outline, and then from that outline, the other writers helped me flesh everything out. And then I picked two of those writers to actually uh, co-write the script. Uh, we were in such a time crunch, and all of us had to like take a piece yeah. and start working on it. So, what was that process like for you guys? You just literally broke it into sections of the script, and then just sort of combined the whole thing. Yeah, basically, uh, uh, what happened is it was me and two other writers, Emily Carmichael and Kira Snyder, and we broke the script pretty much in half. Uh, Emily took one half. It took the other half, and as they would finish scenes, they would send it to me, and I would rework them to put everything together. Cool. So it was a very fast, very TV-esque kind of process.
0: Yeah. Um, when you write and direct something yourself, you're able to write with a director's eye, you know, essentially knowing what's possible and what's practical to do once you get on set uh i know that you just mentioned you worked with a few different writers on this were there any moments when they would come up with something and as a writer you would be like man that's a great idea but as a director you're like how the heck are we gonna
2: achieve this oh all the time especially in the room um when ideas were pitched and and uh, fantastic ideas but would saying look i love that idea but that's an extra thirty million that we are not going to be able to spend, really, or or we are not going to be able to, you know, kill the main character twenty minutes into the movie. That was, uh, that was on like, the table. Uh, everything's on the table. You, you th- I throw out the, the, What I love about the process of a writers' room is, is even as the director co-writer, uh, I I throw out a lot of bad ideas. I throw out an idea, and everybody's like, "Well, we don't like it because of this," and I, I, I yeah, actually, you're right. So poking holes in the story is part of the process, and everybody pokes everybody, it's fantastic. And what was it about um,
0: Kira and Emily that made you choose them for, for this to help you out with this project?
2: I had worked with Kira before. Uh, she was part of my writer's room when I was developing a, a sci-fi military show for stars called Incursion. So I knew her very well from that. Um, I always loved her writing. Uh, she actually wrote a script for that, and, and uh, I remember saying that this was the first time I ever read a script by somebody else that I wanted to direct that wasn't my own thing. Um, and Emily, I met through uh, Legendary. Uh, I saw one of her short films that she did, which I thought was absolutely brilliant. It had it was quirky, it had great characters. And what was that? Do you remember? I don't know. It was. Uh, the one about the two thieves, Okay. Um, really great. I don't remember the name of it, but I was really impressed. And, and, and I really felt just, uh, you know, from a gut level, these two would be the right people. So we, we wrote a whole draft with Raleigh Beckett as, as the lead of the movie. <laughs> uh, finished it, and, and literally the day after we finished it, uh, Charlie, it was wonderful. I I announced that he was doing his passion project, the remake of Papillon, that shot right in the middle of our schedule, and uh, we couldn't move our shoot date because of the release date, another actor's schedule. So we had to quickly retool, and Mary Parent and Guillermo came up with the idea of the son of Stacker Pentecost. So we brought in the writer T.S. Nolan, who had written the Maze Runner movies, fantastic guy. Really helped figure out how to in a, in a, how to change it from uh, from Riley Beckett to Jake Penacones. That
0: seems like something that would throw people into chaos, like a, a late-breaking development like that. How did you guys uh, keep your heads in, in such a time of crisis when the
2: end when the release date is already locked in? Like you know that there's so much work that has to be done. Uh, you know, you, you just plow forward. Uh, if one thing that TV has, has taught me is that you, you'll get curveballs. And, and you've just got to say, okay, all right, well, this is not good, but how do we make it work? Uh, yeah, it always happens. Yeah. And, and it's also great as a director because whenever you step on the set, you come on the set ready to shoot Gone with the Wind. I mean, you, grandma moves, and, and then something happens, and suddenly you lose four hours, and you got to throw everything you had planned out the window. Right. Um, so you just have to be nimble in, in all levels of, of making a movie. Um, I mentioned your TV work a little while ago,
0: and I would love it if you could tell me a little bit about your experience working on Smallville. I was a really big fan of that show
2: when it was on. Smallville was great. Uh, I was coming off of uh, working on Buffy and Angel, and um, my friend Jeff Loeb, who went on to be uh, the head of Marvel Television, was over on Smallville, and he said, hey, <coughs> come on over, we'll have fun. Uh, and and, and I watched the show, and, and I liked the show. So I said, yeah, sure, why not? And uh, Al Goff and Miles Miller, ran the show were just fantastic uh, to me um i got a chance to write and direct and produce and and, and it was great because i i, I love superman uh, i thought that the take that alan miles had on doing clark kent before he became superman as a teenager was was fantastic and, and it was a lot of fun it was grueling i mean doing 22 episodes a year uh i don't I think that was the last time I ever did 22 episodes a year and I don't think I could ever do it again. Yeah. It's so much work. I've gotten spoiled by uh, uh, cable and streaming by doing, you know, uh, eight to 13 episodes a year. Now, that seems a lot to me now. Yeah. <laughs> um, what is the fondest memory you have from making from that show? Is there anything that sticks out to you? From Smallville? Yeah. Oh man, I got I was just actually, uh, uh, tweeting back and forth with uh, Leslie Ann Brandt, who is on Lucifer, apparently Tom Welling is uh, guest starring on that show. Oh, cool. Hey, I'm here with Tom! And uh, one of my fondest memories is, is just working with the cast. Tom Welling was fantastic. Michael Rosenbaum wow. just kept me in stitches nonstop. stop um, every, every single member of the cast was so fun and so lovely. And I got to do like a proto-Justice League episode, which was was really a high point. That reminds me, I mean, you have
0: pretty extensive experience with Superman. What do you think about the the modern version of the Henry Cavill's
2: Superman in the, the DC movie? I think, I think he's fantastic. Uh, I, I'm a huge Zack Snyder fan. Um, Superman Superman is one of the hardest characters, I think, because he's so powerful and so good. Yeah. Uh, Batman, I think, is a lot easier to tackle. because he, He's a human guy that's messed up. That through his own wits goes out and you know fights the bad guys. Uh, Superman is a massively powerful alien from another world, uh, much much harder story. Um, so, you know you, you have Zack Snyder's take, which is a, a little grittier, and you go back to to Richard Donner, which was much more gee whiz mm-hmm. kind of feel, which I also love but he is a hard, hard character. Yeah. So I, I applaud anyone that tries to tackle Superman. Yeah. Um, so getting back to Uprising,
0: one of the things that I really liked about the movie was the way it sort of felt like a Looney Tunes cartoon almost at certain <laughs> points. Like there's a, a moment when a Jaeger like welds a rocket to its arm and the rocket like whisks it around or yes. I mean, it's something like Wile E. Coyote. Was Looney Tunes actually an influence for you? What sort of
2: inspiration no, did act- you No, actually from- no. I drew I, I brought- on drew on my influences growing up, which were very much Ultraman, Space Giants, Johnny Sacco and his flying robot, Um, a lot of Man in Suit, uh, Japanese monster movies, Mm -hmm. Godzilla, Rodan, Gamera. Uh, Those were really my inspirations, and also a a touch of uh, the movies I grew up loving in the 70s and 80s, uh, Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, That kind of adventurous, fun kind of feel were really my biggest influences. Um, There are a handful of scenes in this movie where the characters
0: are piloting Jaegers and essentially just getting their asses handed to them. What did you do to dictate and, and differentiate the intensity of those scenes for the actors so
2: it all didn't become a blur when they're in that encased set? Well, thankfully, uh, unlike TV, we get to use previs, which is, is the rough computer animation of what the scene will look like very, very early, uh, usually before the visual effects company actually becomes involved, um, or, or at the visual before they start to do the actual effects. Mm-hmm. We have this very rough previs, So I always had my iPad with me, and when we're inside the con pod, uh, before we would do any shot, I would say, okay, here's where we are, here's what's happening. So the actors were very much aware. It's not like the old days where there'd be a green tennis ball and yeah. you say, "Imagine a monster." Now they actually get to see what it's roughly what it's going to look like. It's cool. Um,
0: you never really worked with CG on this scale before, obviously. Was that a, a nerve-wracking process? I've heard stories about how uh, vendors were turning in completed shots for different films you know, right up until the the last moment, oh, yeah. when he barely crossing the crossing the finish line.
2: Was that something that you experienced on this, or? There's always such a time pressure, yes. Um, There were definitely uh, uh, some minor shots that needed adjustment right up to the 11th hour, and even a little bit beyond that. (laughs) Um, But it was part of the, really, one of the best parts of this experience, for for me, was working with Peter Chang and, excuse me, and Double Negative. I love visual effects. Uh, you know, and every time I, I read somebody complaining online about ah CGI is ruining the movies, it just drives me bananas. Yeah, it's like you don't understand how how much CGI has helped push movies forward. Mm-hmm. And most people, when they think CGI, they think monsters, robots. They don't think you know the sheep in the background of Brokeback Mountain. Right. They don't. They don't see the invisible CGI that that allows you to create this stuff. The Marvel Cinematic Universe would not exist without CGI right. being where it is. So I'm a huge fan of that, and, and to get to work on this scale with giant uh, Jaegers and giant Kaiju and, and just all aspects, and, and other simple things, uh, like when Jake and Amara landed at the Shatterdome, that shot with the ships coming in, I love shit like that. I yeah. mean, that just excites me. One of my favorite processes was the uh, was the review process of visual effects. Um, late in the game, in the post uh, production process, it becomes basically that's all you do every day. Yeah. It's like five six hours of sitting in a room with the laser pointer saying, "This could be better. Can we do this? Mm-hmm. A little more atmosphere over here." Um, but that to me was such a thrilling part of this. Yeah.
0: What were what were some of the things in this movie that People uh, that are kind of the CG elements that you're talking about—the things that people might not obviously associate with CG—were there any particular things that you um, thought were uh, integrated particularly well into the film in the background or something like that that
2: people might not instantly recognize as CG? Oh man, so many things. A, yeah, there's one shot that I actually, people were reviewing it in the room, and uh, I. I forgot that none of it was real. It's uh, when, uh, when Jake comes, comes out of the hatch in the Jaeger in Sydney, mm-hmm. the hatch was real. That was the only thing that was real about that. Uh-huh. Just that hatch. None of the arm. Nothing that he lands on. All of that was just uh, uh, like uh, boxes with green screen on it and, and everything. And, and I remember seeing it on the review, thinking, wow, yeah, that set looks really good. And then I remember, that's not even real. That's awesome. Um, You made some headlines last year
0: when you mentioned that there's been some discussion about the chance of Pacific Rim crossing over maybe with the uh,
2: King Kong and Godzilla movies. Have there been any more conversations about that? Uh, Just in my own head. Okay. Um, Yeah, that was that was not at all. I don't want anyone to think that was an official legendary thing. That was Steve tonight the fanboy talking about what he would love to see. Uh, I have an idea, a plan for the the third part of this Pacific Rim trilogy mm-hmm. that would open up the universe and allow that crossover if Legendary wants to. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's totally up to them. As a fanboy, I would love to see it, yeah. uh, but if they want to keep it separate, I'll still be paying my tickets to, to see Calm, Godzilla, yeah. Pacific Rim. Cool. Um, I know you're doing a ton of press for this movie and
0: you're probably hearing a ton of the same questions over and over again. I want to turn things over to you for just a minute and ask what aspect of this movie would you like to be talking more about
2: that you have not really been asked about yet? Uh, You know, a lot of it, obviously with a movie like this, uh, a lot of the concentration is on the the action, the CGI, Mm -hmm. the monsters, the Jaegers. For me, what really makes this movie work are the characters and, and the interactions um I, I think for a movie like this to really succeed, you've got you've got to like the characters you got to be drawn in by the character you got to hate the characters in the right way. Uh, otherwise it's just noise and spectacle with, with nothing going on And one of the great things that Guillermo and Travis Beecham, um did with this concept was putting two people inside a, a, a giant mech. Uh, with the idea that you have to have two people working together. And that also, that soul in the machine, I think is so important in this movie. Because otherwise, that final battle in Tokyo would just be nonstop CGI, right. but instead you have this human element that really grounds it and, and makes it more interesting, more emotional, and more fun. So, speaking of the, the human characters, um, you've got John Boyega leading this
0: movie, who is just one of the most charismatic people. I mean, he, he oh, has man. that it thing,
2: that when the camera is on him, he is just a movie star up there. Tell me about working with them. I tell you, my my D.P. And, 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 and I, uh, Dan Mendel, um, we would sit and reviewing the movie for all the various formats for color correction, and every time John came on screen, we both looked at each other and say, He's just, he's a movie star. There, there, there's a definite difference between a great actor and a great actor who's a movie star. Yeah. The first time I, I ever uh, encountered that is I worked with uh, Hugh Jackman briefly on a TV show. And he walked into a room and he's like, oh, I understand, there's a there's a genetic difference between yeah. the two species. <laughs> and John just, man, he has that, that movie star quality. And, um, I'm really excited for people to see him in this movie because he's—he's uh, he's not the same as Attack the Block. He's not the same as Finn in Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, he's a young Harrison Ford. He's—he's he's roguish. He's handsome. He's funny. He's daring. He doesn't take himself too seriously. He—he he can do the emotion. He just has it all. I—I think he is going to get bigger and bigger and rightly so. And. You mentioned Dan Mandel, did he shoot Star Wars with J.J. Abrams? He Is that did, the same
0: one? he okay. did. So what was your relationship like with him, uh, You know, coming up with the, the
2: physical the aesthetic of the movie, the look of it? Fantastic. Dan's a genius. I mean, uh, he's one of the best cinematographers out there. Um, when, when you're starting the prep for a movie like this, the studio sends you uh lists of possible costume designers, production designers, uh, cinematographers. I knew the cinematographer was vital for this movie and I was going through fantastic names with people that I would love to work with and then I saw Dan Mendel and I levitated off my chair. I thought, there's no way I'm ever gonna be able to get him but I'm I'm putting his name at the top of my list. And he came in and we met and and Dan's a fantastic guy. He's a very funny guy but but you need to get to know his personality. He came in, I talked to him, he left and and I told uh, my associate producer, Brooke Worley, no way he's gonna do this movie. And she had worked with him before, and she says, no, I I think he's going to. And uh, sure enough, the next day, he signed on. And uh, I think it made all the difference. Um, He's one of the reasons that uh, we both really wanted to shoot this in 240 instead of 185. Even though 185 lends itself to giant monsters and uh, and, um, uh, the Jaegers, I just, I love the 240 format. To me, there's just something. That's so cinematic about it. And, and he also really thought we should shoot with anamorphic lenses, which I also love. Um, and all of that combined, the, the movie is so rich and layered, and, and he's such a big part of that.
0: So that was Steven S. Tonight. Thank you all again for putting up with the kaiju sized air conditioner in the background. That thing was truly ridiculous. That's going to bring us to the end of today's episode of Slash Film Daily. You can find both of these interviews in written form at SlashFilm.com. They're linked in the show notes. Uh, SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and television, as well as deeper dives into the great features that you can find at the site. You can subscribe to SlashFilm Daily on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, you know the drill, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, anything to Peter at SlashFilm.com. Be sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. And don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. That really helps us out a lot in terms of placement and getting us in front of more, I was going to say eyeballs, but that's not right, Uh, ear holes, I guess. (laughs) So thank you very much for listening. Tell your friends, spread the word. We'll see you guys on Monday.